It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. Hello and welcome to Policy Forum Pod, the podcast for those who want to dig a little deeper into the policy issues affecting Australia and its region. I'm Martin Pearce. Policy Forum Pod is a product of Crawford School of Public Policy at the Australian National University. Crawford School is the region's leading public policy school. Find out more about us at crawford.anu.edu.au. Now, with all the controversy surrounding the Trump-Putin press conference in Helsinki this week, it can be easy to forget that only a few weeks back, the US president was in hot water for a very different reason. The decision by his administration to separate migrant children from their parents at the Mexican border attracted worldwide condemnation. The sound of children crying for their parents in US detention centres went viral in the same week, no less, as countries around the world marked UN Refugee Day, a day intended to commemorate, and I quote, the strength, courage and perseverance of millions of refugees and families forced to flee. On today's podcast, Policy Forum's Maya Bandari chats with Paul Ronalds. Paul is the CEO of Save the Children Australia, and the two of them talk about child rights and social policy in a time when immigration policies are being questioned not just in Australia, but all over the world. Prior to joining Save the Children, Paul was first Assistant Secretary responsible for the Office of Work and Family in the Australian Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. This conversation was recorded towards the end of June as part of the Future Shapers Forum, which was held here at the Australian National University. But before we have a listen, just a quick reminder that we are really keen to get your comments and feedback about this podcast or any of our podcasts. You can find us on Facebook, where we are Asia Pacific Policy Society, on Twitter, where we're Apps Policy Forum, or you can go old-fashioned and send us an email. We're podcast at policyforum.net. I'll be back with more afterwards, but let's have a listen to what Paul had to say. So I'm here with Paul Ronalds, the CEO of Save the Children, and Paul is here at Crawford School to take part in the Future Shapers Forum, which is run by the Sir Roland Wilson Foundation here at the Australian National University. So how are you going today, Paul? Going very well. It's a cold Canberra morning, but beautiful all the same. Yeah, it's freezing, isn't it? It is. (laughs) Um, So just firstly, Paul, what motivated you and drove you to work in the space of child rights and poverty eradication? Well, I don't think there are uh, few issues that the world faces uh, that are more important uh, than ensuring that the next generation of uh, people are uh, educated, uh, are healthy uh, and um, are ready to um, get the the most that they can out of life. Uh, So uh, in terms of causes, uh, it's, um, I think, one of the best going around. Uh, And uh, my work at Save the Children means um, 
that I get to engage in uh, fantastic policy issues, uh, and that certainly continues to to keep me really engaged and interested. What sort of policy issues are you talking about? Well, Save the Children uh, works not just overseas, and we're obviously well known for uh, our work in humanitarian hotspots around the world, but also does a lot of work in Australia uh, with uh, particularly uh, Indigenous communities uh, in juvenile justice uh, settings uh, and with um, many humanitarian entrants. Uh, So uh, I get to um, uh, think about and uh, uh, be involved in issues that are as diverse and um, uh, widespread as Indigenous disadvantage, uh, our immigration policy, um, our refugee policy, uh, juvenile justice issues, uh, and then of course all the international ones, so international aid, uh, humanitarian policy, all of the things that are impacting on the United Nations, for example, uh, right through to uh, events in the United States, for example, that... um, Uh, Mr. Trump might be involved in. Yeah, so you spoke a little bit about what you're doing currently, but prior to Save the Children, um, you worked in the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet for the Office of Work and Family. But where can you make a bigger impact, working in policy or government or in a big charity like Save the Children? Well, I think um, both are really important. Uh, So I loved my time uh, in the Department of Prime Minister and Cabinet. I worked with uh, some tremendous colleagues, extraordinarily dedicated uh, to improving Australia. And I uh, always think of my time in PMNC as being able to uh, impact on a lot of issues just a little bit. Uh, So you can generally um, move the dial just a couple of percent, um, perhaps uh, as um, the issues fly past. At Save the Children, you've got a lot more flexibility um, to impact um, much more on fewer issues, uh, despite the the breadth of of what Save the Children does. Uh, So um, I actually um, think both are terrific, and actually being able to move across the two and understand how the two systems could work more effectively together is something that I'm quite passionate about. And do you think that the social policies that are being implemented and designed, do they support the families and the communities effectively? Well, one of the uh, interesting things uh, that I took from my time in government was just how much time uh, is spent on the policy development uh, process and perhaps how little time is devoted to thinking through how the implementation might actually happen on the ground. Uh, and in my experience, um, that's often the reverse of what's um, required. I would suggest that you know the best policy is a little bit like an iceberg. Uh, the sort of 10% is, is the policy piece and then 90% below the water is how you actually are going to implement that policy. Uh, so, you know, if there was a failing um, that I saw from my time in government, it was the fact that not enough thought was put into implementation. And obviously, that's what I spend a lot of time doing now at Save the Children. Uh, we get, you know, we're involved in the policy process. We obviously seek to to influence the policy process. Uh, I mean. Uh, up at Parliament House later today for a round of meetings and briefings. Uh, But actually, we spend a lot of our time thinking about how that policy gets implemented uh, on the ground in places as far spread as Kununurra in the Kimberleys, uh, Shepparton in Victoria, Sejuna in South Australia, right down to Hobart and um, uh, Launceston in Tasmania. Uh, And each of those communities is different. uh, And we've got to think about uh, how a particular policy might be impacting in a particular community, uh, what the assets and, and uh, opportunities are in that community that we can leverage to make the policy more effective, um, how we engage the local community. And we all know that to achieve social change, uh, the community have got to be active agents of the change that you're trying to seek. So all of these are, are detailed implementation issues, uh, which um, can sometimes be overlooked in Canberra, I think. 
So if you were to go back into government, you would focus a little bit more on the implementation side of things? Well, I'd certainly encourage uh, a lot more imp- uh, a lot more focus on the implementation side of things. Um, I mean, obviously, the policy is important and you've got to get the policy framework right. Uh, but uh, we've got to devote more time, more effort uh, to thinking about how it actually uh, rolls out on the ground. We're currently seeing a lot of coverage in the media about the Donald Trump administration and its decision to separate families when they're caught crossing the Mexican border without authorization without authorization. But it's argued that Trump's approach to immigration laws and the separation of children from families, that it's used as a bargaining chip to force political agreement. But just what sort of effect do these political decisions have on the children who are being separated from their parents? Like what is actually happening to these children? The uh, important thing, I think, to to start with is to understand um, the context from which uh, these children and families are fleeing. Uh, It is uh, extraordinary violence, uh, it's hardship, it's poverty. Um, And so when these children and families arrive on the border, they're already traumatised, they're already uh, seeing things that um, most ordinary Australians would never see in their lives. Uh, And then to finally feel like they've made it to the border, that they are finally safe, that their family is not going to be shot or killed, they're not going to see uh, their parents die right in front of them, to then uh, be separated uh, at the border, you can imagine just how traumatic that is. So that trauma uh, is just adds uh, to the trauma that these children have already suffered. And um, we know that the more trauma episodes that you experience uh, in life, uh, the more likely that it is to have long-term impacts on you. And those impacts can uh, manifest themselves in many, many different ways. Uh, substance abuse, um, uh, down the track, uh, in the short term, lack of sleeping. I mean, we see a lot of kids that have suffered from trauma that um, are just bedwetting, um, uh, you know, can't control themselves at, at, at night times. All of these uh, are evidence of the, of the trauma that these children are seeing. So, uh, What is best uh, for these children is if, as they arrive, they're put immediately into a place where they feel safe and comfortable, uh, where they feel protected, uh, and are able to start that transition. And this is the exact opposite to what's actually happening on the border. Yeah, and the images that we're seeing of that trauma and that despair are just truly heartbreaking, aren't they? They are. uh, And, um, I mean, it's it's really easy. You saw UNHCR put out their latest uh, refugee report uh, last week and uh, found that 68.5 million people are now uh, on the move around the world, either as refugees or internally displaced people. And and statistics like that sort of roll off the tongue. uh, And I think some ways the more um, people affected, the less we seem to sort of feel it personally. What is amazing about those images that you referred to is it actually brings it home. Uh, It helps you remember that these are people uh, these are people that have suffered enormous trauma and abuse uh, and actually, um, rather than helping them, uh, we're making things worse. Where do you stand on Australia's refugee and immigration policies? And if there was one thing that you could change with just a click of a button, what would that be? Well, I, I think um, my you know, key concerns about Australia's refugee policy is it's sort of a, a, a bigger than neighbour uh, type approach. Um, This is a global problem. Uh, As I said, it's uh, 68.5 million people around the world who are are on the move. That's an enormous uh, amount. It's 3 million more um, than uh, was recorded in the report in the previous year. That's the fastest ever increase um, in UNHCR um, history. Uh, So this is a, a crisis of epic proportions. And when you have a uh, challenge of this magnitude, you need a global solution. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash spoken today. Uh, and you don't get a global solution by each actor essentially um, thinking about what's in, in its individual best interests uh, and essentially putting up um, the shutters, closing the door. Uh, instead, uh, for these sorts of complex global problems, uh, you need to form coalitions of people uh, that have similar values uh, and pursue uh, a, a joint solution. Uh, and that's probably the piece that, that most disappointment, disappoints me about this. Um, we live um, uh, in a region that is actually uh, has relatively few refugees. Uh, when I visit Jordan and Lebanon uh, and Turkey and places like that, you, you just see how many refugees there are um, that other countries are, are dealing with. So we have a relatively small problem, uh, and in that situation, we should be able to come up with a, uh, a very good regional solution that both respects the dignity of the refugees uh, as well as um, provides sort of orderly um, flows and make sure that we're, we're able to, to um, provide the appropriate services that refugees need. Uh, and instead, we've got a sort of binary um, type debate in Australia where uh, either um, you are characterised as... as uh, wanting open borders, uh, or um, you are required to um, support a, a harsh uh, and, uh, I think, um, uh, policy that's completely inconsistent with international obligations. Uh, so, so those two binaries are not the only solutions. Uh, there are a whole raft of other policy solutions in between where I think we can actually get the right mix of uh, humanity uh, and um, border protection. Uh, and I think those sorts of uh, policy options have just been lost uh, in the, the political fighting. Yeah, that was black and white. And I think that word dignity that you used was a really important one, that these are humans that we are talking about. And regardless of what border protection and what standards of that we need, we're still talking about people. Yeah. I mean, I often remind people or ask people, what would they do uh, if uh, they were in Syria? And I mean, I'm a father of three children. Uh, and when I ask other fathers and mothers what they would do uh, if their children were in the sorts of situations that Syrian refugees were or South Sudanese refugees were or Yemeni uh, refugees were, um, there's not one of them, whatever of their political persuasion, that doesn't say that they would do everything in their power um, to protect their children, um, to try and place their children into a safe place, to try and make sure that their children got basic education and health care. Uh, and that's really, at the end of the day, what the parents uh, all around the world are doing. Uh, and when we're talking about 68.5 million refugees, half of them are children. Uh, half of them are children. It's, it's a staggering uh, statistic. Mm. And just to continue talking about the United Nations, the UN defines children as those who are under the age of 18. And early this year, Japan decided to lower the age of its adulthood from 20 to 18. Do you think that trying to pin down a number for, adulthood, for childhood versus adulthood is possible? But, and what are some of the challenges when it comes to defining childhood? Well, I think uh, there is um, both advantages and disadvantages about having a sort of a hard number like 18. Um, there is obviously uh, clarity from a, a sort of 
policy and practice perspective. Um, we would say the children's very involved uh, in um, uh, child marriage issues, uh, which can have a really detrimental impact, obviously, on uh, particularly uh, young girls, uh, where they're forced usually into a marriage uh, much earlier um, than they would, and it means they nearly always come out of school and, and lose the opportunity for an education. It means that they're having children at a much younger age. Um, uh, there's a whole raft of, of issues associated with that. So it's important that we do set clear boundaries, uh, clear uh, expectations around the world. Uh, on the other hand, uh, we also know that um, children develop at different rates uh, and that uh, you can have a very mature 17-year-old or you can have a 19 or 20-year-old who's perhaps not, not in the same place. Uh, so we also need to have a degree of flexibility and that certainly um, uh, say the children's approach, for example, with juvenile justice issues here in Australia. Uh, where um, often um, we're funded by a particular department um, to do things until that child uh, reaches uh, uh, his or her 18th birthday. And on that next day, we're no longer able to provide those services. And of course, um, that's a, a, a bit of a nonsense, really. I mean, that um, person um, needs the same services when they're um, you know, 17 and three quarters as they do when they're 18 and a quarter. Um, and it's important that they continue to get the sort of support that, for example, our social workers uh, provide until um, they are able to establish themselves in a, a you know, steady house. Um, they're actually back uh, learning or engaged in employment or whatever their, their goals might be. Um, so um, we've got to be careful, going back to our, our earlier discussion around how a policy is implemented, um, that we're actually not doing more harm by having what are arbitrary distinctions, um, uh, but that actually we're giving uh, service deliverers like Save the Children flexibility to make sure that we're actually acting in the best interests of the, of the person. Mm, so a definition is needed, but there still needs to be some flexibility. Yep. Yeah, great. So now I just want to go back a bit and talk a little bit about your experiences working in this space. What are some of the insights that you have on child rights and social policy that you can share with us? Well, I've shared one already, and that is um, how much more important it is to think through the, the implementation um, piece. Um, uh, and and that, that's one of the sort of standouts. Uh, a second one is uh, around incentives. Um, and um, uh, when I talk to uh, friends and, and colleagues and family, you know, they'll often express um, disappointment at a particular policy that might be being implemented um, without necessarily thinking through um, what the incentives for the policy maker, uh, whether that be um, the, the political person or the public servant or, or whoever it might have been, uh, were. And actually, do we have a system that's providing the wrong incentives here? Uh, so um, to give you a concrete example, one of the things that we know is very important for solving complex disadvantage uh, is joined up services. Uh, and what that means is that we're able to provide um, the things that a person needs when they need it, irrespective of the various uh, siloed funding pools. Um, but we also know um, that governments are set up at three levels, local, state and federal, um, that each department um, has different funding streams uh, and each minister is responsible for those funding streams. Uh, so a, a good example uh, is juvenile justice where we know that um, a young person to get their life back together needs a whole raft of supports that would be provided by um, different departments uh, and potentially different governments. Um, but if you're a minister, uh, for example, uh, and you're being asked to pull your funding to help a particular young person, um, 
you, know, you face some significant challenges. Our Westminster system holds you accountable as the minister for the money that your department spends, but you're being asked to, to pull it with other state, uh, other levels of government or other departments. Um, when something goes wrong, are you going to be hold, held account- accountable for that? So we can understand why ministers might be cautious uh, about pooling resources. Uh, similarly for public servants, um, you know, my experience as a public servant, um, you would be... Um, uh, hurled over the coals uh, if you couldn't um, demonstrate that the funding that you were providing was you know, well acquitted, um, that is that you had the right sorts of paperwork for it, um, but seldom were you held uh, accountable for the actual outcomes, um, school readiness or uh, the employment outcomes or the housing outcomes um, that ultimately you were trying to seek. So it, again, it's not surprising um, that Public servants uh, faced with those incentives um, prioritise making sure that they've got the administration right over and above the actual outcomes. Um, So when people are getting frustrated at particular policy settings and the way that they're being implemented, we need to think through these incentives. Uh, Are we making sure that the players um, that we're tasked with actually implementing the policy are doing the right, you know, have the right incentives. Mm, that's a really good point. And I guess one thing I take from that is regardless of what issue you take, there's so many different actors and so many different factors at play that we need to think about. And just before I let you go back to the Future Shapers Forum, I just wanted to ask, what is the future that you are trying to shape? Well, I want to see uh, a time when uh, all children, uh, irrespective of which country they live in or um, in a place as big as Australia, where in Australia they live in, uh, is that they uh, are growing up healthy, uh, that they have all enjoyed uh, a quality education uh, and that all children are free from violence. They're the three big global goals uh, of Save the Children and uh, for me they are extraordinarily motivational. And if we can create a world uh, that's uh, like that, uh, then I think uh, we will be leaving a fantastic legacy. Thank you so much for taking your time to talk with me, Paul. You're very welcome. That was a fascinating discussion, and my thanks to to Paul for his time there. I thought his comments on the importance of focusing on policy implementation rather than just policy creation were really very interesting insights. So what did you think? You can let us know on Facebook, where we are Asia Pacific Policy Society, on Twitter, where we're Apps Policy Forum, or you can just drop us an email, podcast at policyforum.net. At the beginning of this podcast, I mentioned the controversy surrounding the Trump-Putin press conference in Helsinki this week. This is a good opportunity, I think, to give a bit of a plug to Chris Farnham and the National Security Podcast, who have got an, an extra pod coming out today, a special short extra, uh, with an interview with Matt Sussex from the National Security College, talking about that very event and shedding some light on what was what was, to outside observers, a, a fairly strange week in international relations. Well worth a listen, uh, and we'll include a link to it at the end of this pod. That's all for this week for Policy Forum Pod, but we will be back next week with a very special episode looking at policy implementation at ground level. It's, not, it's one you are not going to want to miss. So we'll be back soon. We'll see you then. Cheerio for now. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. 
The Real Housewives is a guilty pleasure for most, but if you're looking to not feel guilty about that pleasure, tune in to Everything Iconic with me, Danny Pellegrino, where I break down all the messy moments and behind-the-scenes antics of Bravo's popular franchise. And on Everything Iconic, I also interview celebrity guests like Kelly Ripa, Kiki Palmer, Drew Barrymore, Cameron Diaz, and more about their guilty pleasures, their past work, and so much more. So if you're pop culture obsessed and find yourself watching way too much reality TV like me, tune in to Everything Iconic with Danny Pellegrino, wherever you listen to podcasts. ACAST helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. ACAST.com.